This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to. Because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy. So we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. On August 25th, I'm the most brutal, vicious, ruthless champion that's ever been. The most anticipated original series is here. You may know Tyson. You're the heavyweight champion of the world, young, rich, and black. But do you know Mike? The minute you get too big, they gotta cut you down. Starring Trevante Rhodes. Um, I am Mike. And Harvey Keitel. They'll love you as much as they fear you. Now I'm really gonna have some fun. Mike. Series premiere August 25th, only on Hulu. Hello everyone, I hope everyone's safe and well in these horrible times. Just a caution that this following podcast does contain some very strong language and some very strong opinions. Welcome back to another sparring of that Millwall podcast, where we step into the lion's den with a former Millwall player 
And joining me this afternoon is the one and only Mr. John Sitton. Good evening. Good afternoon, John. Afternoon, Neil. How are you? Not too bad, mate. Yourself? Yeah, getting better every day. Thank you. Yeah, for those of us that uh, wasn't on the, or for those people that wasn't on the live stream on Friday night, you've just actually recovered from COVID, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, getting getting stronger every day though. I'm doing a little bit more each day, and uh, slowly but surely getting back getting back to full strength. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, but it looks as if you're fighting weight. You could turn out for us this weekend. Uh, yeah, I was five stone over me playing weight. Now I'm only three stone over me playing weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I lost I lost thirty three pound. I was bedridden for twelve days. If they didn't hear it on the other on the other pod with uh, with you and Mick and uh, no, Omar, I mean I um, all sparked out for like eight days, nine days. Then I got up and started to get on the move. I got my brother in law screaming down the phone at me to get up and get on the move and. Uh, my missus was just recovering, so she was the thing. My boy was coming in and shaking me to stir me and all that. And then slowly, slowly, I got up and got on the move again. But I didn't know. It's all down to things like blood oxygen levels and all that carry on. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, it was uh, a bit of a scary time. But uh, touch wood, thankfully, luckily, I'm, I'm one of the ones that, that, that come out of it. All right, then, John. Now, then, you, you were uh, – if you were actually – what captain of Chelsea reserves, weren't you? Uh, just before you joined Millwall. So, where did things? How did the move come about? Um, well, just to just to set the scene, set the table. I had quite a lot of success early. Um, I went to Arsenal as a kid, and uh, the, the the people involved lied about my age. I was getting away with it until I got Osgood Schlatter, which is like a growth spurt a very debilitating injury. I was there for a year. And then Arsenal were one of, in my book, I said nine, actually. It was 10 because I forgot Maurice Newman coming up with an envelope to try and uh, get me over to Leighton Orient, uh, or Orient, as it was called at the time. And it went completely out of my head in the book. Um, but Arsenal were one of nine clubs. And then like, what happened is you, sort of, you, you go on a little uh, sampler, a little mini tour of all the clubs to do the evening coaching what would now be evening academies, I suppose. And then I picked Chelsea. And then I went schoolboy at 14, apprentice at 16. I was offered a four-year pro deal at 17 and a half, captain reserves at 18. In the first team, um, albeit a very brief run, because you had people either being sold or hiding or cheating. Uh, so I probably made my debut a little bit before my time in what is now the Premier League. Although for uh, the majority of the games, I quitted myself well. Then I had a fallout with my, uh, he would have been my seventh manager in six seasons, Jeff Hurst or Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Sir Jeffrey Hurst, England yeah. World Cup winner. Yeah. And um, I don't know if it was adolescent angst or maybe ahead of me time. I've been spoiled by uh, the likes of Dave Sexton and Dario Grady who were tapping into the, um, we probably had the best academy in the country or one of them, if not Europe, where they were tapping into the zeitgeist at the time, which was Ajax and uh, latter day, a little bit further down the line, Bayern Munich. Uh, and I think they won it three years on the spin, the European Cup, uh, Ajax at the time. So they went into their methods. So I was totally spoiled. Then um, Earth came along and basically uh, I piped up because all it did was ran the bollocks off us for nine months. And I put, I've actually put in my book, you know, you would have thought would have levelly played at and the people he supposedly played under who meant to be these... Uh, great football minds. He could have coached 
standing on his head with an eye patch on playing the mandolin. You know, it should have come that easy to him. But um, he made a sweeping generalisation and said, like, everybody in the football club's nowhere near foot enough, fit enough, beg your pardon. And him and Bobby Gould just, like, basically, like I said, ran the knackers off us for nine months. We had a magnificent training facility that we'd moved to at uh, Imbercourt, which was the Metropolitan Police training ground for the Met Police football team, the cricket team, the where they drilled the horses, where they drilled the dogs, who they had from pups. And it was absolutely unbelievable facility over in uh, uh, part of Surrey there. Just past... Yeah, Molesy, uh, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah, Molesy area. Yeah, yeah. We, we had a gaff in East Molesy at first, and then they moved us up the road to Imbercall. Um And I can recite to this day, I mean, it wasn't like now what you've got. You, you've got like fitness coaches and warm-up coaches. I mean, you've got staffs now. I don't know what it's like at Millwall, to be fair, but you've got staffs at most clubs as big as a, as a UN delegation. Do you know what I mean? But and you had like, you, you'd have now like an elongated, probably three-stage warm-up uh, at Chelsea. Like it was a jog around the pitch, do a few stretches, and then we went straight into uh, um, two 800s. Um, two or four four hundreds, four two hundreds, or like horseshoes. Um, four box to box, four sets of doggies, then a nine aside. So half pipes up, you know. You know where's the set pieces? Where's the throw-ins? Where's the defensive strategy? Where's the patterns of play, etc., etc. Which didn't go down very well. Um, and if it wasn't that, it was a seven-mile run over Richmond Park. You know, basically trying to avoid the uh, the stags and the dog shit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, and uh, what they'd do, they'd break it up with like shuttle runs. You know what what what, yeah. like, what they call in uh, back in the day in football, they called them doggies, and yeah. then back like on again. You know what I mean to complete the seven mile run. And I thought it was appalling, abysmal. Um, and then like what happened was, I had a bit of a I had a bit of trouble against Arsenal. Uh, I'd already had I'd already had a bit of trouble. I'd already had a bit of trouble in the youth team. Someone was like going round and and I remarked in my book again about the hypocrisy, the duplicity and hypocrisy in football. And um, I was brought up as an Arsenal supporter, believe it or not. Me old man, I, I watched a grainy black and white thing on the family holiday two weeks, uh, summer holiday last week, the July first week of August, down to our caravan in Clacton, and we used to go to Walton and Frinton and. Uh, Holland on sea and all that. And then we used to go to the fun fair at Walton. And then across the road, there was a little pub where there was a family room. And I remember watching a grainy black and white program um, of a Saturday night. And it was like match of the day. And I was like enthralled by it. And I said to me, dad, dad, can we go football? And he said, I'll take you to football, son, on one condition. Because he was bought up in, he was born and bought up in Kentish Town, um, the Queen's Crescent market area. Uh, which I know from the knowledge, but uh, he said on one condition that we, we, we only go to the Arsenal. And I went to every home game with him on the, on the North Bank there. Um, and I, I, I saw, I saw teams, I saw teams, you know, Peter Story's the first one <laughs> and, and all the people he came up against that, you know, Sheffield United Leeds is a great example. Chelsea would be another one uh, where, you know, some of the tackles, if it was on, on, on the street, it'd be classed as GBH. And then what happened was I had a thing in the youth team where there's this kid going around kicking and growling and snarling at everyone. And I, I went into him and the referee never even blew for a free kick. But what happened was the tackle ended his career, um, which was very unfortunate and something that, that I've got a tinge of regret about. But like I say, 
it's just a case of me going in uh, hard, fast, and heavy. And it, it, it was a little bit, a little bit too much for him. And uh, that, and, and that's that's what transpired. And then we had a reserve game. I'd already had a taste of first team football. And unfortunately, the best coach in the club, Brian Eastick, who I, who I bumped into further on in my career at Leighton Orient, he helped win his promotion. Um, I was at loggerheads with him. So, you know, I don't know whether it was attitude. It probably was. I, I left to hold my hands up. I was a bit wild. I was a bit of a rebel. I was a, had a bit of an attitude, a bit of adolescent angst. And um, I got sat down and taken aside by the likes of Ray Wilkins, Ronnie Harris, David A., and uh, sort of just went in one ear and out the other. Do you know what I mean? But we had this football combination game against the Arsenal and uh, two quite tasty sides. And we started the game really well. We was popping it around and winning a few free kicks. And we were always encouraged, just get your hand on the ball, spot the ball, take a quick free kick in the middle and attacking thirds, if you can, rather than just lump it into the box. And all. Anyway, we took the lead 1-0. And then obviously, like I said again, just to reiterate the duplicity and hypocrisy of football, Successful clubs down the years, um, Arsenal being one of them. Um, and then you've got your Liverpools, you, you know, you've got your Man United's in particular under Ferguson. Uh, they could mix it and they'd start putting themselves about and then the tackles come flying in. So like us being us, we started to sort of take the piss a little bit and we was knocking it about, getting free kicks and a couple of people got nutmegged. Um, a teammate of mine, uh, you got the kid in this thing now, Billy Gilmore reminds me a lot of him. Uh, teammate of mine, Jimmy Clare. You know, he flicks one round the corner, gets it back. Someone comes rushing in, he nutmegs them, then he gets upended. We get a free kick and bags at 10 paces. Um, I'll go in to separate it. Didn't say nothing to no one. Always kept myself to myself. Never looked for trouble. Um, looked to get me hand on the ball to take a quick free kick. Kevin Owl's teammate of mine says something to Paul Davis. Someone else butts in. Another fracker. And uh, Arsenal players spat at me. So we go in half-time, 1-0, a few minutes before half-time. Um, I didn't even listen to the half-time. You know, I mean, it goes in one ear. It, Brian Eastick, keep it tight, keep your shape, keep it going, uh, keep a clean sheet, we'll win this, da-da-da-da. And then Arsenal kicked off second half, and I just basically stood near enough on the halfway line. When they played the ball back, I just went and launched myself at the first Arsenal player, and it happened to be Paul Davis, who never spoke to me for a few years. Um and because Terry Neal sends a letter, uh, again, like bullshit, duplicity, hypocrisy to Jeff Hurst and Bobby Gould saying we've had problems with this lad before, do something to sort him out, have a chat with him, find him. I mean, first and, first and foremost, what goes on at Chelsea's got fuck all to do with Terry Neal or Arsenal. That's what I said to Bobby Gould. Secondly, I said to uh, Gould, you made a career out of leaving your footing on centre-backs and full-backs as they play the ball up into the channel and clattering goalkeepers. I said, and you're... you're uh, you're, uh, what do you call it? You're, you're lecturing me. This was after we got caught in a pub on a Friday. But it was a family tradition. It was a Chelsea family tradition. The whole staff would go. You go out of the main gate. You turn left. There's, there, it's called, uh, I think it's called the Chelsea Pensioner. Now it used to be a pub um, called uh, the Black Ball. Um, it was only a little pub. Neil, we used to go in there. Nothing more sinister than a black currant and lemonade and a bit of cottage pie, chips and beans, which obviously wouldn't be on the menu now. Uh, with all these, like, you know, fad diets and, and special athletic diets that they've got. Um, and then Bobby Gould pokes his head around the door. Boom, boom, boom. What are you lot, what are you lot doing in here? Clive Walker, Lee Frost, me, Mickey Fillery, Gary Chivers, Jimmy Clare, Mickey Nutton. Manager's office, three o'clock. 
I said, we ain't doing anything wrong. We're only doing what everyone's done for the last six years since we've all been here. And he said, well, maybe that's the problem. You, should, you shouldn't be in it. You should be, you could go and have a pizza or something. Um, but, yeah, we should go there for a game of darts, game of pool, and then either go home. One or two of us even used to go and a uh, couple of hours at the cinema. If, you know, what are you going to do? Go home and watch fucking Little House on the Prairie. I mean, <laughs> so we're, we're, having a, we're having a thing in there. And then I said to him, is that it? And he went, yeah, so, so I said, come and chat. So we might as well finish the playing doubles at Paul or whatever. They get called in, Frost and Walker. Uh, Frost was on, well on the way to ending his own career anyway. Um, by the way, he trained and acted and the way he drank. Walker was a different kettle of fish, a physical freak, physical phenomenon. I've seen him, fit, he, he, I saw him, I've seen him drink, sink 15 pints and, and a few shorts. And then you go to a seven mile run in Richmond Park the next day and he's just like out the front, caning it and just running everybody into the ground, just totally unaffected. Um, plus he was a match, a match winner at the time. Um, and then I got called in and they just fire into me. You know, you normally assume good cop, bad cop, but they've stopped, both steamed in. But what happened was I shocked them because Jeff said to me, uh, you're part, you're an integral part. You've got an attitude problem. You pipe up. You've got too much to say for yourself. You're an integral part of the drinking problem at this football club. Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, well let, let me stop you there. I said, if I question something, because he's saying I've always believed, Neil, you know, there, there's got to be in any organisation, particularly in a football club, there's got to be an element of conflict. And an element of conflict will create drama. And then an element of drama will create uh, a solution, a finality. And uh, But I didn't realise it at the time. I had probably in my subconscious. I just said, look, if I pipe up, it's only to try and improve things. Because I'm sick of playing with players who are, you know, just like they're happy to land a treatment table with a mug of tea and a puffing on a Rothmans. You know what I mean? Um, this is how decrepit it was back mm-hmm. in the day. But... Um, he said to me, if you're not an integral part of the drinking culture at this football club, uh, then you tell me who is. He said, because I've got to stamp it out. <laughs> so I said to him, look, all due respect, I said, you've got some fucking front. This is how I spoke to him because he went red. So did Gould. I said, um, I'm born in the East End. I said, you played for West Ham and you're asking me to be a fucking grass. No chance. I said to him, you've got absolutely fucking no chance. I said, tell your, tell your spy who was, uh, I was referring to Brian Eastick. I said, tell your spy who's trying to put the bubble in for me. I said, to do his own work properly. I said, and then you'll find out who the drinkers are, but he ain't coming from me. He said to me, in that case, then you suffer the consequences. I said, what's that? He said, starting Monday, you you um, you 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 report to the ground, the main ground, Stamford Bridge, you train on your own until I can get you out of the football club. So it's one of like at least three occasions where I should have uh, gone berserk, kicked up a fuss, the PFA was in its infancy, if if it existed at all, and um, maybe fought it, uh, but I didn't. And then by the Friday, um, I'd already been seen in um, a few reserve team fixtures. The main one that was brought up was Southampton away, Southampton v Chelsea, where Arthur Rowe, former uh, double-winning manager at Spurs, who was chief scout under George Petty, saw me, and he, he's just like, he just said he's, the kid was unbelievable. He said him and Mickey Nutton won the game on their own. And he put in this fantastic report. So George Petty said, right, let's get him over. And uh, the rest is history. I signed, I signed for Millwall. Yeah, well, Arthur Rowe was, of course, Tottenham manager. He was the architect to push and run. 
wasn't he? And then he left uh, Tottenham, worked his way around London, I think, and ended up at Millwall. So, yeah, we can go back to Chelsea a little bit. Uh, there was a little group of players around about that time that flitted in between Millwall and Chelsea, wasn't there? Dave Stride, Mickey Nutton was, of course, a sign-in by George Graham. Uh, John Sparrow joined on loan. So it was quite a well-trodden path, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, everyone you've cited is a bit different to me. Stridey um, ended up, I think he ended up in a, he, he even, I think he had a few games for Leighton Orient as well. I think he had a season now. Um, yeah, I mean, people say I'll get too emotional, too wrapped up in things and all that, and to be more forensic. Well, if I'm going to be forensic, uh, the same way people have been forensic and judgmental about me, then I can do the same. Um, John Sparrow was a, was out of Bethnal Green. He was a big drinker. Um not good enough for Chelsea. Our Eddie Mack got a season or half a season out of him. God only knows, but that's the genius of Eddie Mack. David Stride the same. Even when he went to America for a summer loan, I said, what's the training like? He said, you do all your training at the bar sits. Um, so that would show you, give you an insight into his outlook. Um, Mickey Nutton was injury prone. I got into, I broke into the side with him in the first team at Chelsea and George would have bought him because he would have liked his athleticism it was a decent height. It was very, very quick. And he had good spring. Um, and half decent on the ball. But uh, very, very injury prone. Mick, he should have had a, a massive career out of football. Um, ended up at Fisher, I think. And, um, yeah, it's a shame. Because everyone, Mickey was like, in our age group, uh, Mickey was the one that everybody ultimately, uh, in, especially in the second year of our apprenticeship, they, he set the standard. Everyone, I'm certainly one that looked towards him. Um, because he was a magnificent athlete, good player, and not many people got got the better of him or got past him. Um, yeah, so that 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 would that would uh, that would be, I would think, the, one of the, like a few of the reasons why George Graham signed him. I just missed out on George, which is a shame because I, I would I would have enjoyed playing under him. You were a ten thousand pound signing for Millwall, but you weren't expected to join Millwall, were you? You were expected to join Wimbledon, I think. From well, Earth sent me, he, 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 obviously, like previously at the club, what had gone on when I, when I went there, Dario Grady was um, firmly entrenched um, as, as a coach, very highly thought of, um, and, and, and probably most importantly, when being appointed, very highly thought of by Dave Sexton, um, who kept him in situ, you know. And then what happened was the thing got broken up when Eddie Mack took over. Um, Dave Sexton left, done, done his bit at Man United and then QPR. Um, and Ed, Eddie, Eddie McCready, just a little um, note of Benny on the side. He, um, well ahead of his time, uh, had the lot. Magnificent manager, magnificent charisma, magnificent personality, magnificent coach, magnificent innovator and imaginative and years and years ahead of his time. I mean, that is just unfortunate. I never got the, got the chance to play for him. Uh, although he did say that I should, with the way I, he stopped, he stopped a small-sided game once when we were apprentices. It was the first day of pre-season, summer of 1976. Called me out, ruffled me air. He said, "You all right, son?" So I said, "Yeah." I thought I'd done something wrong, and he said, "You know, sir, I've been watching you train. You should, you should have been born a Scotsman." And uh, I just thought, well, "I'm just, pr I'm proud to be English, boss." So he said, "Go and get back in the game." I think what he, what he was um, sort of driving at 
intimating was the fact that um, just the way I trained and played with a, you know, a lot of sort of energy, maybe a bit of art, a bit of passion. Um, yeah, you look at that. I'm thinking to myself now, when when uh, when you turn the clock back, I went and negotiated. I actually got to the stage where I went and negotiated with Dario Grady, and um, Ron Nodes was chairman at Wimbledon, and then he started talking about basic, and then I was looking at like the you know the difficulty of getting to the training ground on the A3, uh, and then when he hit me with the wages, then I asked him about signing on fee because I was saving up to get married. He um, he said, "Well, like sort sort out, you know you." your house first, he said, and then like the, the chairman will help you with a few quid with regards to a deposit. I said, well, I want it written in my, con- into my contract. So, um, to and fro, and I just thought I got to the stage. Um, I needed some, I needed a fresh start. I needed a break. And I just said, well, look, if it's all right with you, I said, I'll be honest, I'd like the opportunity. Millwall have been in touch. I'd like the opportunity to talk to Millwall. Um, and it's, it's only it's only the year before. I think historically, when I look at it, I think they'd been they were in the second division, what is now the championship, uh, the year before, and they got relegated. Um, so I just wanted a chance to talk to George. And then when I did, I went there, spoke to him, spoke to Arthur Rowe, spoke to Bob Pearce, and I thought this is the place for me. And and it must. What kind of person was George Petchy? Obviously, yeah, well, we all know him for being Millwall manager. What kind of person was he? Well, you have to you have to turn the clock back a little bit and uh, look at his days. He had a, he had a spell at Palace. He had a spell uh, where where he was particularly successful in bloody young players at Leighton Orient uh, or Orient at the time. He mentored um, the likes of Laurie Cunningham, who's revered as. Um, a fantastic attacking player, wide player. And, uh, you know, that's a well-trodden path with regards to knowing the story about Laurie and ending up at Real Madrid, etc. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, when I look back through, and like I said, I never got the chance to play for Eddie McCready because I was an apprentice. Um, so notwithstanding, when I look at the seven managers in six years at Chelsea. When I look at George Petchy at Mill, when I look at Keith Peacock at Gillingham, Frank Clark for six years um, or five years at um, Lake Norrin, and then Peter Eustace for a year. Um, George, without doubt for me, was by a distance, quite by quite a distance, the best manager I ever played under. Um, great football man. Um he had a gift of drawing you out. Um, let me explain you what it was. You know, like you, I'm at Chelsea where it's like a little bit towards the end of Frank Lampard's run, you know, where it's like a little bit, it was a little bit an- anarchic, every man for himself, um, continuous day-to-day one-upmanship, continuous day-to-day, uh, you know, sniping. I mean, they call it banter, but it was like some really like disrespectful heinous shit going on there. A um, lot of backstabbing, a uh, lot of people really out for themselves. And uh, I'll be honest, in the end, I can't wait to get out of the place. Whether that's the goings on at every massive football club, I don't know. But um, George had this knack of being able to draw you out where you felt totally comfortable in his presence. And he would allow you to express yourself 
uh, in training. It would allow you to express, express yourself on uh, on a match day. And then just as importantly, I believe, during the week, it would allow you to express yourself in the office or in the, tra- in the, in the, in the changing room in, in front of him. And, and he would bring your personality out. And I thought it was a total all-round, um, just like top football man, but a humanist, a humanist. That's the best thing of the thing of the way I'd think of describing him. He was a humanist. He, he was just like a lovely, a lovely, lovely man who you would run through brick walls for. Um, I see him rear up once or twice. I mean, it weren't at me, but because uh, I think you know I'd, I'd have a go regardless of how I was playing. I would have a go. Um, you know, so he was capable there. Um, but I just think like by country mile, he's the best manager I played under. You were a ten thousand pound signing, as I said. I think you, I think George signed you to replace Dave Donaldson, who had moved on. Uh, so you've gone from Imber Court, and I was reading your book. Suddenly, you get a bit of a culture shock. You turn up at Millwall's training ground, just on the other side of Catford. Tell us about that, John. Yeah, well, there was numerous training grounds, and. Um... Uh, you know, I hope people don't take it wrong and all that in the book because Chelsea was just as bad until we went to Imber Court and then even a little bit, even a little bit at Molesey. I mean, it was like every day was a mud bath, you know what I mean? And then they'd roll the pitches and then it'd look, look de- semi-decent again. It, we didn't get a decent playing surface all the time I was at Chelsea until we went to the Metropolitan Police training ground at Imber Court. So it was no, it weren't really that much of a culture shock other than the, the travelling because there was like normally two or three options. There was a gaff. The other side of Catford, there was a gaff in Lewisham and the other one was Southwark Park on the AstroTurf, which he tended to use a lot when he turned up, Peter Anderson. But, oh, when you looked at it, and, um, nothing really seemed to change. When I went to Gillingham, they had about four training grounds. And when I went to Leighton Orient, they had about three training grounds. The common denominator was avoiding the dog shit. <laughs> or, or in Orient's case it backed onto some reservoirs where they had a problem with Canadian geese and there was like <laughs> go, goose shit all over the place so and I mean literally like every square inch so you, you know if you had a cut um, or you put in a sliding tackle when you had a cut I, I mean like um, I'll leave you to use your own imagination it, it, you know it weren't, it weren't you, you had to be really on the ball with regards to your personal hygiene after training and making sure like you scrubbed any grazes or cuts, you know what I mean? But yeah, Mill was no different than any of the others, really, like what I would call um, lower division clubs. Although you like, you like to think now, latter day, with a bit of reddies coming in, like clubs have got their acts together. And so you turn up. Uh, what did you know about Millwall and Millwall players before you joined? Obviously, I think Barry Kitchener was there. Uh John Lyons, Tony Kinsella, to name a few. Phil yeah. Coleman. Yeah. John Jackson in goal, I think. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a book come out. Um, just like El, a pal of mine who's, who's actually helped me, Merv Payne. He'd done the class, of, I think he called it the class of 79. But you, you had, what it was, I was, it was like, it was sort of juxtaposition between it, it, really sit like senior pros, really experienced, and then kids who just won the FA Youth Cup. So obviously, like I'll lean towards bit. I was only twenty, and I just turned twenty. You know, what I mean, the previous October. So I went there in the February. Um, so obviously, like I'll lean towards being pals with the likes of uh, Peter Glazier, 
You had Peter Glazier, you had uh, Paul Robinson, you had Paul Roberts, who captained the FA Youth Cup winning side. You had Phil Coleman, you had Davey Martin, Dave Mehmet, Tony Kinsella, uh, Chrissy Dibble. Like top draw boys, just top draw, fantastic. Made me feel welcome. A uh, little bit of banter, but friendly. Nowhere near as um, venomous or spiteful as it was at Chelsea. Um, or undermining as it was at Chelsea. Then you had like, he, he was a cracking signing, Johnny Lyons. May he rest in peace. I became very good friends with him and Robbo. We were like, the three of us were like social partners uh, and used to go out together. You had uh, Kitch, who was like, uh, uh, you know, all the time he was there. He was a club legend. Lovely man on and off the field. Um, a bit of a mentor. Tried to help everybody. Tried to look after the kids. Johnny Mitchell, who they got from Fulham. Great technician. Um probably lacked a yard of pace and weren't really renowned for his goal-scoring ability, but uh, very, very good technician to ping the ball into and build off of John Seisman, who thought he was the fifth beat, Scouser. Um, You know, Johnny Jackson in goal, always talking, always bossing you, always giving you good information. And apart from Ray Wilkins, um, what I'd experienced at Chelsea, the best midfield player... Uh, apart from the ones in my youth team, in my group at Chelsea. Um, and then you look above, you look at the seniors, the best midfield player I've ever played with, uh, Nicky Chatton. And I'll remark, enough, yeah. yeah, he was the skipper. And what, what I do now, I'll remark in the book about fate and about, um, you know, just the way things are sort of mapped out and not stuff beyond your control, circumstances beyond your control. And it's like decision-making in football. And sometimes that decision, I'm going to be truthful with you. I've been in, I was in it for from 12 to 37 when I, I walked out on, as an FA coach educator. Sometime, uh, I'm not going to put too fine a point on it because I feel strongly about it. That decision um, that, that can influence someone's career, and I've come across a couple, is the decision of a, an out-and-out fucking 24-carat Muppet. And uh, when you look at Chatterton, um, it was better than anything, like I say, other than Ray Wilkins I played with at Chelsea and Jimmy Clare in my own age group. Um, his passing range was superb. He always wanted the ball, no matter how tight the position, the situation, it would get you out of trouble. Um, he'd always come and help you. He was good on the field. He was he was good off the field, good company, full of life, effervescent, little one-liners, very intelligent, and I really loved him. Um, and it, it was like, when I turned up, it was like, I'll be honest with you, it was like a breath of fresh air. It, I thought at the time it was a perfect mix. It seems as if it was much more of a family type uh, setup than than you've probably experienced at Chelsea. Players were a lot more together, all singing off the same hymn sheet. Not superstars. I'll tell you what it. I'll tell you what it is now. Right? I'll tell you what it is. Because if we'd have played Chelsea, we'd have given them a good game or beat them. I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's um, uh, a bit of what you said. But that's as a consequence of um, uh, just like decent people with a bit of humility. You understand what I'm trying to say? There, were, there, yeah. there, there was like a feel-good factor um, there as a consequence of you, it's like dealing with uh, decent people. And uh, that, like I said, had a bit of humility about them. And there was uh, a togetherness and a spirit. And um, yeah, I'll be honest with you, it was 18 of the happiest months of my life. I was just reading some of the match cuttings. Uh, we were in the running for promotion, I think, when you joined. I think you were, you were probably the bolster of promotion push. 
and you made an impressive debut away at Hull. Strength and defence, but we lost 1-0. Yeah, we, we played them off the park. We played them off the park. We got, we got, I'll tell you what, it was two things that cost us. We got caught with a sucker goal. Um, we continued to play them off the park. And then uh, he used to take a tremendous amount of stick from a lot of the other lads. Uh, but he was one of them come from a so-called bigger club and, and, and at the time in terms of status and the people he played under, like Malcolm Allison, Mel Blythe. He'd get a little knock. Um, on this occasion, I think someone raped their studs or kicked him in the calf. And he said, that's me done. You're talking about a centre-back. Should never happen. He said, that's me done. He just went off. So obviously the side had to be reshuffled. And you had people like Kitch and uh, Johnny Seisman and Nicky Chats, superb. They're like, Blythe, what the fuck? What are you doing? What's going on? Right? And they're bollocking him. They're bollocking for turning it in. Um, that's the truth. That's that's the forensic truth. Um, whereas uh, if you plot up and you roll your sleeves up and you say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in and have a go, that sends a message out to the opposition. Um, but he went off and, and unfortunately it stayed 1-0. Because uh, well, I'll be honest, we weren't short of goals in the side. He'd chip in chats and uh, the wide men, Mehmet, but in particular Johnny Lyons. Um, he had a great technique with regards to getting his body in and getting half a yard. He had a very short back lift and he would explode a shot off. And he was very good at getting across people in the box and getting the surface to it, making first contact, all the stuff you coach. Um, and finding the back of the net. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, we 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 uh, we went up there, lost one nil. And then you made your home debut the following week. That couldn't have gone any better. Funnily enough, I was going to say it couldn't have gone any better. Yeah. Uh, Oxford United pitch up down at the Den. Yeah. As yellow as it was, and we win three nil. And uh, Tony Towner scored two, somebody vastly underrated player. I knew him well when he when I served my time on local newspapers and he played for Crawley Town right at the end of his career. He was a great he lad. Scored, yeah. He scored two. Hmm. And uh, the new boy pitched in with the third goal. What do you remember about that game? Uh, I'll tell you what I remember. I never put a foot wrong. I remember being... Um, I think it was Johnny Seisman. I'm not sure. I'll do so. I say it because I always used to have a little bit of thing with him. Um, and then later on, I had, a, I had a bit of a thing with him when he was at Tranmere with this Ronnie Moore. Um, and it, like, calm down, sits here, elite you. I said, yeah, you fucking try me. Um, he was a little bit full of himself. But anyway, he sold me short. So I goes into a 50-50. It, it's what we call a blue light. It had a, the ball had a blue light on it. Um, as in, as in a fucking an ambulance. Anyway, I've gone through the geezer, left him spark out. The ball squirms out. I get up quick. This is all in the centre circle, by the way. Um, second fifty-fifty, and I go through the second geezer. I leave him spark out. The ball squirms out. I get up quick. Third fifty-fifty, I go through the third geezer. So I've won three fifty-fifties within a ten-yard radius. I'm absolutely. I'm cr- I'm cream crackered. I rolled the ball short to Nicky Chat, and all I'm, all I remember was the the ground erupted like we'd won the fucking European Cup because I've like <laughs> just riveted three people. And then like we, you're talking about the Oxford team that like they they went through. The, by and large, the personnel stayed more or less the same. They went through all the divisions and ended up winning the Milk Cup final. Um, but I remember we got a free kick wide on our left. Um, if he'd have been playing like like Tony, either, either side, Tony Kinsella on the left, 
Tiger Tanner on the right, they got upended all the time. They had right liberties take away, and Chrissy Dibble, because he had pace dibs, right? We get a free kick um, between the 18-yard line and the touch line and about maybe 15 yards in. So more or less level with a penalty spot. So I'm jogging up, being one of the honey monsters, although like not not as big as some when when the when the real honey monsters come in, um, which is what I remark about in my book, getting caught between two stalls. Um but sticking to specifics, I'll look up as I'm jogging up. I'll look over. I'll give. I'll give. I'll give Nicky Chats the eye treatment. I look over. He gives me the eye treatment. So what happened? Uh, it was the, the captain was marking me. Mal, Mal Shotton. Um, he captained them. I think in the middle, defender, middle, big centre yeah. off. Yeah. So I've just slipped in. Um, I've I've threatened the back of him, and then just like got across him, and Nicky Chats whipped a blinding ball in. Uh, so casual, he's just like a yard and a half off the ball. He just steps up. Puts a bit of shape on it, nice bit of fizz and a bit of shape. And all I've got to do is guide it. But what when I went in, head, neck and shoulders, crash, right top corner, top right-hand corner. And uh, again, the crowd, the, the ground erupted. You know what I mean? I, I've stuck it, stuck me nut in so thing, it's like someone had volleyed it. But it was like, all I had to do was take the pace off. Of, uh, the, the pace was on the delivery. So all you've got to do really then is guide it. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. I think we, we ended up, we topped up winning 3 0. And then, then yeah, afterwards, so you got you got all the old you got all the old firm the leftovers from like treatment and F troop they won't let me buy a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so it couldn't have much better. Yeah, you yeah we've gone from the reserves at Chelsea to the first team at Millwall. You must have actually been enjoying your football by then. Yeah, what happens is. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what happens now. Right? So, like, I'd had a, first, a, a little taste of first-team football at Chelsea. Um, I think it amounted to 14 games. And out of them, I had two really poor ones. So, for an 18, 19-year-old in the top division, I've acquitted myself well. Every single centre-forward was an international centre-forward. Then what happens is... Um, you start getting blamed for stuff because you're you're easy you're an easy you're easy meat you're an easy. I'm going to address it in my second book, and if I if if I could, I could go through every member of Chelsea's playing staff, and I can dig them out about at least two or three things where they come they, they come up short. You know what I mean? And what happens is it, it, there's none there's none there was none of that like it is now. It was like in you go, son. Uh, you got your chance because uh, they've they've started to sell off all the family silver like Ray Wilkins, eight hundred and fifty grand Man United. Uh, centre half Steve Wicks, uh, really firmly well established now. Wanted to further his career, so he went to Derby for two hundred grand. Gary Stanley, um, not my cup of tea. Always giving me verbal because he couldn't get past me in a training game. Kenny Swain the same. He went to Aston Villa. Ended up uh, uh, at Chelsea. Played centre forward, midfield, right midfield. He ends up as a, a European Cup winning fullback for Aston Villa. Gary Stanley goes to Everton for 400 grand, made his back off a one goal in the promotion winning season. Um, not a very good trainer. Larry, uh, very handsome, couldn't walk past the mirror. Uh, revered for his good looks and his dress sense. Uh, but all I'm interested in really is like what goes on on the training ground where he was, he, he was very capable of being, being very nasty. Um, and uh, on match day, you go from that. So like as a kid, the point I was going to make now, a kid makes his debut, he hits, he hits a, he either, like he plateaus, like we all do, he plateaus. I mean, I was like 12 stone two, dripping wet. I'm playing against the likes of um, uh, Frank Worthington, 
Frank Stapleton, Alan Sunderland, um, Malcolm McDonald, uh, Ferguson and Wallace at Coventry, both Scottish international centre forwards. Uh, the others all, all English international centre forwards. Stapleton and Rep Republic of Ireland international centre forward. Reeves and Fashion who are at Norwich, etc., etc. Um, so you know, by and large, I acquitted myself well. But what happens is you plateau, and then you need to be reinvented in terms of like people have got to help you with your game. Um, you need to up your football IQ. You need to revise the basics. The bottom line is you need help from coaches and you need uh, conditioning. So what they do now, that's what they do. And then they put them back to the academy side or the under 23s or the reserves, you know, whatever the fuck. At the time, it was just a football combination. Um, but when it was my time, it was in you go, sun, sink or swim. I thought I was swimming quite nicely. And then obviously I'm at, of it choppy waters um, and got shown the door. This is after what you have to do as best you can, because I remember it, even the training, Neil, it was a, it, at Mill was a culture shock. What you have to do the best you can, you have to get, you have to get rid of like what they call reserve-itis, where you've been in the reserves too long. And over a period of time, like when I was a, a schoolboy and a first year apprentice, I was, there was South East Counties Division 1 and Division 2. Well, I had a couple of games in Division 2, but I more or less skipped Division 2. And I was playing with the second-year apprentices and young pros in South East Counties Division 1. Then when I got in South East Counties Division 1, I had a season in that. Then I went straight into the football combination where you're playing against, like, pros coming back from injury, senior pros on the wane, um, and other aspiring youngsters. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I was acquitting myself quite well. And then that step up the first-team football, that's when you need a bit of help when you hit, when you hit that brick wall, when you, when you start the plateau. Uh, that wasn't to be, um, because I, I definitely weren't going to get any coaching from uh, Erston Gould. Um, they run the bollocks off me, and then uh, in the hope that that would improve my game. But that wasn't the answer. Uh, so what you have to do, you have to overcome the reserve itis and get accustomed, uh, like in terms of going back to getting accustomed to first team football, which is um, I like to think what I did at, at, at Millwall. What was the coaching like at Millwall? Because I think Terry Long was George Petty's assistant, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, nothing's really changed uh, for decades and decades and decades. You know, what exists in football is nepotism. Um, and he, I think Terry had been under him at Orion and Palace. He took him with him. Truth be told, Terry was a, a lovely man, fantastic human being, um, helped uh, nurture the feel-good factor. Uh, but couldn't coach in a month of Sundays. Absolutely no no way, shape or form could he coach. In actual in actual fact, I, I would go as far as to say um, the sessions were borderline embarrassing, but they just didn't encompass uh, the amount of running we did at Chelsea. That was as embarrassing as the sessions at Chelsea, but um, not quite as taxing because we had one we had one what they called a physical day, which was a Tuesday. Um, if we didn't have a midweek fixture, we'd have a physical down the Tuesday and be given Wednesday off. The best sessions of the week, inevitably, were when George came on the training field on a Thursday or a Friday. Or both. Actually, it was both because what he would do, we'd have a practice match on a Thursday and then on the Friday, we'd have a, a, like a mini session, but also um, run through the opposition. And that, that was down to George. And you'd be practicing your set pieces and that kind of thing, yeah. I guess, as well. Yeah, getting a feel for each other in terms of like a pattern of play that George had put on and um, passing a movement. 
uh, end product, you know, so drills for crossing and finishing, uh, which you take separately from the pattern of play and, uh, you know, basically highlight it, enhance it. You could do it as a coach, of, as I've come to know, what I'd prefer to do is that you can work your way backwards from that um, and instill the pattern of play. So you start at the end, you put the end as the beginning and then you work your way back and then and you put the beginning at the end. Um, so so then what happens is uh, you go on to uh, rehearsing and revising things like set pieces and throw-ins, maybe do a few drills and then on a Friday it'll be uh, – same sort of thing again, but then they'd have a small-sided game and it'd be more short and sharp. But they were, they were, for me, the best two days of the week, Thursday and Friday when George came out. Because you was getting information. You was getting, um, you know, it, it was it was trying to improve your game. You know, you can't, do, you can't do that without the help of a coach and without good information. That only came from George, with all due respect, to Longy, you know. Well, for those people that aren't familiar with the 79-80 season where John joined us, we were actually steaming along for most of the season inside the top two, two, three. Mm. Uh, came towards February, obviously John joined us. And we're going quite well, including a game right at the start of March where uh, Swindon Tang came to the den. Yeah. And uh, we beat them 6-2. Yeah. But don't Four thing is nil, nil, nil. The thing is, don't don't start talking bollocks, right? Because in the statistics, they're talking bollocks, right? We won six two, and one of the two from Swindon, we fucking annihilated them. They put down as a sit and own goal, right? Well, it, That's that, what I was going to bring up. Yeah, well done, because it ain't the case. I'm not having it. I never scored an own goal in my life. I was unlucky in the respect that, like you could say, Gary Mabber, he got more, he got more, uh, more own goals than. Um, than anyone in the game. But it, it, it was a consequence of a, what I used to call a wet lettuce header from Tony Tag, And it went to the edge of the box. And then I'm thinking quickly and I'm alert and alive. And I'm getting out to close the second ball down and possibly go through the geezer and win it. Um, at best, at worst, block the shot. So I'll go out. What happens is he hits it. And uh, like it used to happen with Mabbott, uh, it clips his knee and flies in the top corner. Well, in my case... I've got out, made the block, and it's come off like the side of my foot and gone in the top corner. Fuck what to do with being an own goal. Whoever done that report is a muppet. Even reporters, listen, your biggest enemy is a reporter because it's a, it's, I've always, I said it in my book, it's, uh, it's, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a supporter with a pen or, or in this case, like modern day, with a laptop. Right, they ain't got a clue what they're looking at. So I've I've gone above and beyond the call of duty to try and cover um, a minging header from Taggy. I've gone out, gone to get the block on, uh, get in the geezer's face, get his head down, and uh, he's he's took the first timer and it's ricocheted gone in off my leg, top corner. It's not an own goal. That's not an own goal. I'm not having it. It's not an own goal. Yeah, well, after your reaction, but really, it was I'm six one. That, yeah, well, I'm glad that I didn't stick with my original question, which Go was going to be. That we scored seven of the eight goals that night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm at I'm at me with a six. Let's call it six one and a half to make them laugh. <laughs> six one and a half. Uh, we'd actually bought in Bobby Shinton for that game, hadn't we? I think did he come in from Man City? I think if memory serves me correct, to good, bolster us lad. up a little bit. Yeah, good lad. 
yeah, Bob, uh, little Bobby Shafto, we called him. Um, we used to sing to him, little Bobby Shafto, me and Robbo. He, he was a good lad, yeah. And um, he enhanced the, the dressing room with uh, great personality, good good movement. Um, yeah, he was a decent forward. But Johnny Lyons was still the governor. I ain't saying it because he was a mate, may he rest in peace, but Lyons, he was the governor because he, he was the one with the goals in him. Yeah, Johnny Lyons, I think, scored 18 goals in the league that season, three yeah. in the FA Cup. Yeah, and they did other people. The other problem was, Neil, uh, the, the reason it went off the boil, I think, like, what happened was because it was a young side. It got battered about a bit. Uh, we was a bit green. Uh, there was a few tricky dickies on the other firms. And um, probably one of the major ingredients was the fact that, uh, that the goals needed to be shared around the team a little bit more. You know what I mean? The, the, like the, the, the accent or the, the emphasis temp and the dependency tended to be on Lionsy, Johnny Lyons. Yeah. But the more, it's like I've always said when I've coached, it's, um, it's just common sense, really. I mean, you, you need as big a goal threat from as many areas of the football field as possible. Um, so, you know, like, it's like the season, like the season, our, our captain or in a promotion. I mean, I chipped in centre back, eight, nine, ten goals from, from set pieces. Uh, assist, forget about it. It would have been up 30-odd assists, you know what I mean? So if I didn't score from the run I made, um, Eastick, Eastick uh, me and him had a, had a bit of a truce. He asked Clarky about uh, whether he'd had any trouble with me. I said, leave off, bro. I said, the last time you seen me, I was 18. I said, I'm 28 now. I said, I'd like to think I've grown up a bit. Anyway, he, put, he placed us in these areas and they're even doing it now to this day, circa 1989, the same sort of set pieces and they're, they're scoring from the same areas. And I, I had this movement and run and I got across people and then like try to deflect it in. And if, if basically if it didn't go in the back of the net, it was flicked to someone who was putting the goalkeeper or peeled off the far post who converted. So my assist would have been out the window. So the point being, there were goals coming from back four players. There was goals coming from midfield players, in this case, Stevie Castle. And we had... Uh, two forwards who, who shared the load and got about 40 goals between them. Well, when I was at Millwall, Neil, like I said, it was far too dependent on Johnny Lyons. Yeah, well, I'm just having a look at the stats for that season. Nicky Chatterton scored 10 goals. Johnny Lyons got 18, as I said. Tony Towner got 12, but nobody else hit double figures. Nobody else hit double figures. John yeah. Mitchell, I think, was the next Highest goal scorer at eight. Fucking hell, it sounds like uh, it's a bit like C for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the most priceless commodity. Yeah, it's the most priceless commodity in the game, mate. I mean, Gary Rowe, he won't need me to, he won't need me to tell, tell him and he won't need supporters uh, to moan about it. He'll know uh, that you need as big a goal threat from as many areas of the football field as possible. But ideally, you want two that you can hang your hat on um, who complement each other up front if you play that way. Um, if not, you need one. If you play with a one, he's got a guarantee you're like, you know, 15 to 20 goals. Uh, you know, around about the 18 mark. So if if that's not the case, you're going to find yourself treading water. So around the time of that Swindon game, did you feel that you could push on and get in towards the promotion place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can't really... Uh, until Anderson turned up, um, George, George was taken poorly. Um, this is towards the end. And they said, I don't know whether it was uh, 
a fairy story to cover the fact that Apple wanted to move him aside. Who was the chairman, Lenny Apple, um, which is the reason why Anderson ended up turning up at the football club. Um, and and they were talking about like George having a couple of health problems, and he might be moved upstairs or he might step aside. Um, honestly, can't remember all my time now. Um, of course, I met wonderful people on and off the field. Um, I can't really remember there being a bad atmosphere, bad spell in terms of atmosphere, confidence, because of the, the, the personalities involved. Like I've named, you know, Johnny Jackson. Um, he used to come up on the Rattler every day from Brighton. He took he took bundles of stick about his Parker <laughs> that he used to wear. But just like so full of life, effervescent, always full of good information, good pro, good goalkeeper. Uh, Nicky Chat, I loved him. Nicky Chats, I absolutely loved him. Um, great lad on and off the field. One of the best midfield players I've ever played with in my career. Um, Johnny Mitchell ended up, when I smashed my car up, I ended up coming in. Him, him and Peter Glez used to pick me up. They used to come all the way from Hertfordshire, Arpenden, up that way. And because they had to go through like my part of London, they used to pick me up. So we became um, good pals and, and a bit closer. Um, just like funny, funny. Every day was fun. Every day was funny. I don't know. Maybe that might have been part of the problem. Uh, you can have too much of a good thing. Um, but I can never, I can never remember, or the, and I wouldn't envisage it being any different other than a joy, you know, and a pleasure to go into work every day. And then I think disaster struck towards the end of the season. I think we only won what two or three of the last quarter of the season, which I think, as you alluded to earlier on, young side, nobody else scoring goals or nobody helping to share the goals around. And it cost us really, didn't it, that year? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. Yeah, we got, I mean, we got up, um, I remember being clapped off the field and like loads of back slapping. Uh, I started off the game at right back and I forget it was alongside Kitch, but we were playing Cholton. We'd done Cholton at home 2 nil, and then we played it away at the Valley. We ended up drawing nil nil, but what happened was that there was a, a thing and it had to shuffle the pack. So I got moved from right back to centre back, and up front with Derek Ells and Paul Walsh, which they were both magnificent forwards. And like Walsh, he went on to play at a very high level with uh, Spurs and Liverpool. Um, but I played out of my skin. I played out of my skin. I was absolutely uh, unbelievable that night. Even though I said myself, it was one of them games that'll always like when you when you have a game like it as a play, it sticks in your memory for the rest of your life. And I remember being really um, cool, calm, composed. I'd earned me, I'd earned me stripes by now. And I remember a long ball, a long diagonal ball, and I was surrounded by Cholton players. And uh, it got to the stage towards the end of the game. I was playing so well, I really like, started to take the piss. Uh, we was on just inside our 18-yard box. And I remember getting old and head and shoulders above about four Cholton players, including the two centre forwards. And they thought I was going to go crash and edit out. And what happened was I went and I just gently edited it back to John Jackson, who, who caught it. Um, when I got, I got like applauded off the pitch. Bob Pearson back slapping me and Roger Cross and Longy. No. 
message. Hey, man, it's Devin. You know, from that time you accidentally emailed me because you thought I was a different Devin. <laughs> oh, and your email signature said confidential. If you receive this in error, please delete. <laughs> That's so you. Anyway, I heard you bought a boat. When are we set in sail, Captain? <laughs> when you get a boat, you also get new friends. Make sure Progressive's one of them and get coverage today for as little as $100 a year. Oh, and uh, no, you did not receive this message in error. <laughs> Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates Annual Premium for Basic Liability Policy not available in all states. On August 25th, I'm the most brutal, vicious, ruthless champion that's ever been. The most anticipated original series is here. You may know Tyson. You're the heavyweight champion of the world, young, rich, and black. But do you know Mike? The minute you get too big, they gotta cut you down. Starring Trevante Rhodes. I'm I am Mike. And Harvey Keitel. They'll love you as much as they fear you. Now I'm really gonna have some fun. Mike, series premiere August 25th, only on Hulu. And uh, I just wanted to do it for George. Um, and then what happened was, at one time, it looked like Longy might take over. I think we had an away game. But it worked like our away form was abysmal. And this is where the wheels started to come off because what you need, you need uh more of the more of the type like of like Nicky Chats. You know what I mean? Who he could do both sides of the game. You know what I mean? He he was a, a fantastic footballer. His passing range was magnificent, short, medium or long. He always demanded the ball. He always wanted the ball. He'd always get you out of tight situations, like I explained before. But there comes a time in a game, Neil, where if you're up against it, particularly away, what you need to do is you just need to be resilient and solid and fundamentally just like put your foot in. And Chats was more than capable of doing that. Uh, but it needed more around him. It was too light and it was too pretty, but far too lightweight. Whether it was uh, Tiger or Chrissy Dib on the right, Tony Kinsella on the left, Dave Memmott in the middle of the park, and then there's a couple of players I could name who I don't really want to, but their main thing was to avoid injury and um, look smart after the game, ready for the social. Um, so obviously it's a bit of a recipe for the for the wheels coming off. Then in your second season, uh, a young player started to emerge who became a Millwall legend, Keith Stevens. Yeah. What do you remember about Keith as a youngster? Uh, I remember him breaking through. It didn't bother me. I mean, I, I was bought there um, as a right back. But then in the end, I think what happened was uh, George and the staff, I've always suffered from it, see? but So I don't know whether I'm right in, in terms of my theory as a coach. Um, because of my grounding and because of my coaching at Chelsea and because of my all-round ability as a footballer, I could play... And in the end, I did. I could play right back, centre back, left back or midfield, which I ended up doing for Gillingham. And I acquitted myself, um, even though I sat myself nothing short of magnificently. So I did. I really wasn't bothered where I played as long as I played. Rhino came in and he ended up playing right back. So I, so I thought, I don't mind as long as I'm playing centre back. Because I think in the end, the staff recognised that that was my best position. It's where I started life. It's where I was most comfortable and it's where I wanted to grow as a player. Um yeah, and I mean another good lad to add to the uh, to the core that was already there. Um, I mean, my roommate was Davy Martin. Uh, nutty as a fruitcake, but we got on lighthouse on fire because I think I was at the time as well. Uh, Alan McKenna, all these type of boys—they're just like top draw people, top draw teammates, top top draw human beings. And um, I remember Rhino well. Yeah, yeah, come in as a right back. When I left, I come up against him. With uh, he was playing alongside Allardyce, 
Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> so, the second season, it didn't really go as well, did it, as the first season? We Well, we struggled for long periods, didn't we? I can only talk, Neil, from a personal point of view. I mean, like people see in football, what it is, like I said, sometimes it's the opinion of a Muppet. I mean, you had, he was just coming through um, and he, he, he's lucky enough to have a couple of couple of three decent jobs, Roger Cross. But I looked at him and he, he didn't pull any trees up for me. Hi, this is Marvin Williams. You're listening to that Millwall podcast. Longer I've already explained. I mean, like, I mean, it's a fucking borderline joke. You know what I mean? It, part of the warm-up was simple Simon and do this, do that. And uh, like I've explained in my book, it, 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 this was what you're, st- I mean, you're meant to be on the move. You're meant to be stretching and jogging and uh, half pace stretching and three quarter pace stretching and get a few beads of sweat running down. It'd be there like, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then, uh, you know, so when he said do this, you had to do it. And when he said do that, if you did it, if you went do that and you did it, you'd have a punishment, 10 press-ups. I, I mean, it's fucking nonsense. <laughs> All due respect, lovely guy, <laughs> lovely guy, but complete and utter nonsense, complete and utter nonsense. Um, and that was part of the warm-up. And then Simple Simon says, do, do something or other, and you had to do a party trick. You know what I mean? It's, um, I mean, I don't know whether I'm contradicting myself because maybe it helped form part of the feel-good factor and, and the fun. But um, and it's something I've been accused of, being too intense. And and being too too profound, to Robbo said you was always the philosophical one that looked deeper. Um, in answer to your question, some sometimes people just don't like don't like the cut of your jib. They don't like your personality. Um, so I was maybe uh, then uh, starting to become peripheral when um, the other people were caretakers, even though I was playing uh, outstanding. Um, and then, like, you had the, the rumblings with regards to somebody else turning up and George not being there anymore. It can be it can be unsettling, put it that way. I'd already had a dose of it at Chelsea, and I'll, I'll be honest, by this stage, if I knew then what I know now, I'd have made a massive stand and made more noise and uh, said my piece and got the PFA involved and kicked up a, kicked up a fuss because at the, at the end of the day, at least you then get a reputation as someone like, say, like David Speedy when he was a young player. Um, I spoke to him as an agent. I thought you you got more fucking front than Arabs, mate. He said to me, I asked him to do do me something, and he said, I think I don't think I can help you, sits. He said Cause the Channel Four documentary uh, didn't do you any favours. This is coming from someone who, as a player, was probably the most petulant um, footballer on the planet in his time. Yeah. But he got, he had a reputation as a as a younger man who, who he knew what he knew what he wanted. I just went with the flow and went along and just tried to be a decent pro and keep my mouth shut, believe it or not. People find it hard to believe now. But, you, you know, you, you get to a stage in your life where you just think, nah, that ain't happening again. You know what I mean? And I just think where I was concerned, um, there was one or two people hovering around. Um, if you wanted me to be, do you want me to be 100% honest? Yeah, go on, man. Do you want me to be 100% frank? Um, yeah. I, I went to the football club from Chelsea to Mill on the back of what was reported to George Petchy by Arthur Rowe. And then what happened was there was an ex-Chelsea member of staff, Eddie Eve, who joined Millwall as a scout. Well, he came under the jurisdiction of Bob Pearson. Right. So now you've got me, who's a, I'm a year or a year and a half older than the youth team that won the youth team, that won the FA Youth Cup. And the team that won the FA Youth Cup 
who were being blooded as young professionals was a team that was put together by Bob Pearson. My theory is, and it's only my opinion, and it's only my theory, there was a, a there became Bob had a vested interest in making sure that his players, in inverted commas, so uh, your Rhinos, your Paul Roberts, your David Martins, your Phil Coleman's, um, were in, and Paul Robinsons, they were in the back four before me. Because I wasn't, I never came through the ranks with Bob Pearson. I wasn't a Bob Pearson boy. I was a, I was a Chelsea boy. And um, so I think there was a power struggle behind the scenes. There was a little bit of backstabbing, a bit of sniping. That's just my opinion. Um, propaganda. And uh, other people were put forward as they should be in the side before him. And that's, that's what transpired. So I was, I was on a sticky wicket for about at least the last six months of my Millwall career. So when did it start going wrong with Peter Anderson? Because he took over, what, just after Christmas, just before Christmas in, what, 1980, 1981? Honestly, don't know. Honestly, don't know. I never put a foot wrong in training. By now, I'd got rid of all the reserve itis. I was an established first-team player at Millwall Football Club. Um, I've got my theories on it, which I'll come to. Um, as he joined... As he joined, um, I think he was heavily influenced by Roger Cross and um, Bob Pearson. He leaned heavily towards and in favour of the FA Youth Cup winning side, particularly Paul Roberts, who's a big pal of mine, still is. Um, and we were in direct competition for playing at right back or centre back or as a sweeper. And it coincided with me being suspended. Um, what I will maintain is, when I played for Millwall, I never gave anything less than 100%. And when the going got tough, I was one of the ones that stood up and was counted and rolled my sleeves up and put my foot in. As a consequence of that, you start accumulating bookings. So I'd gone over the 20-point mark, and then what happened was you had to appear before the like the beak at 16 Lancaster Gate. So he turns up with me, Anderson, to speak on my behalf when he hadn't even hardly seen me play. Um, and it's saying like, you know, he's a good lad. He's, his conduct has been exemplary in games. It's been exemplary in training. Uh, he conducts himself exemplary on and off the field. All of, all of the above was true. So then he contradicts it by saying, uh, I want to change things around. My theory on it is this, which I'll, I'll just, I'll scratch the surface earlier on. My theory is, um, it wasn't a manager. It was too much of a baby to be a manager. Um, in the respect that he used to put on a mock American accent in the car when he used to give us a lift to the training ground. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm serious. I'm serious. Because he'd come from, he was at Luton where he knew the chairman who was a, like, he, he, you know, Lenny Apple. I've got my own theories on him in terms of like the development of the ground, leaving the old den for the new den, what's gone on there with the property company that Apple was involved with. And then he used to take the piss when we used to go on a three-and-a-half-hour coach journey, get a battering, come back, and then we had to drop him off at his big mansion in Hampstead before we could go to South London and jump in our car and go home. Um, pumped no money into the club. The club had £500,000 worth of debts. I think it all started to come on top with George. The supporters, um, born of frustration, were fickle. Uh, judgmental, never had a fucking clue, started screaming at George and all the rest of it. We never had a training ground. He never had no money for the transfer market, never had no money for this, no money for that, no money for the other. And uh, the supporters wanted George to keep pulling rabbits out of hats. 
and that weren't going to happen. So anyway, previously, Apple had had a relationship, um, a working relationship with Anderson at Luton. Then he left Luton and went to a club in Belgium or somewhere, somewhere. I think it was Belgium. Then then he ended up on the gravy train in America, where players go to die, uh, where they're like they're basically either has-beens or. Uh, I've had the row with uh, Hudson about it, you know. I mean, so I knew what went on from the Chelsea boys. They'd go on on a summer loan, or and, and some of them, a couple of them, got moves out there, and they get a nice few quid out of it. Do you know what I mean? Well, they're basically players who are not good enough for the English game uh, on the wane because they're getting old. Um, and or not good enough. And what they're looking, they're looking for a final payday. He played for Tampa Bay Rowdies. And what Tampa Bay Rowdies in Florida has got to do with the old Kemp Road and fucking Bermondsey, I ain't got a clue. Even more so, what it's got to do with the third division and third division football, I ain't got a clue. Because one doesn't even remotely resemble the other. When you throw into the mix all of that, the fact that he had no understanding of the area, the club, the division, and he never had a clue how to manage or to coach, it was basically a tennis side every day um, on AstroTurf at Southwark Park. Then it's a recipe for disaster. I just, this time, I kept my mouth shut, got on with it. But he just didn't like the cut of my jib. As a consequence, I think, of being heavily influenced by, in inverted commas, a, a club legend, Bob Pearson. So instead of putting um, people in the side who should have been in the side, like me, he put people in the side who other people wanted in the side. Um, and that's my true take on it. And that's my honest um true opinion of it then he says to me i'm looking to change things around um and he said i've had one or two people sniffing around you because i put the feelers out i want them i basically want to i want to move things around um because i think there's too many people here in the comfort zone i think there's too many people here um they get like they're, they're getting old um and and basically taking liberties with the club um i don't know whether i don't know where i come into that category because i was only 20 coming up to 21 um, then what happens is he contradicts it by going out and getting Phil Warman from Cholton and uh, Alan West, who's his mate from Luton, um, who were on the last knockings of their careers. Um, and Allardyce, uh, and I remember Davey Martin saying to me, uh, oh, it's all right, but Big Sam would be all right. I actually had a social uh, when he first turned up at a club, uh, Allardyce, and uh, we got on really well. And then I met him again when we were managers. And I got on really well with him. And uh, he likes a night out, likes a sherbet, um, he even likes a cheeky, cheeky cigarette. Um, we went to um, a well-known club in Deptford, owned by some brothers. Um, anyway, we had a couple of cracking nights there. And uh, David might said, I like Big Sam, he's all right. He said, you'll make a good pair sits. I thought, me personally, Rhino or Robbo at right back, me on the right, of central defence, Allardyce on the left of central defence, or vice versa, I didn't give a fuck so I was two-footed. Um, and then Paul Robinson at left back and screening the back four should have been Davy Martin, who's a magnificent athlete and a top-draw player, along with Nicky Chats, who could mix it. He, he weren't frightened of anyone, Davy, and, and uh, he could put his foot in. And when I was there at one time, Liverpool were looking at him and he'd barely turned 16, right? So I thought, yeah, She's going, oh, like, be like, could be you and Big Sam. And then me being me, I said, like, yeah, Big Sits and Fat Sam. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then what happened was, to be honest, Neil, it was a bit of a kick in the bollocks because uh, he just hit me with it one day. He said, I want you to play in the reserves tomorrow. Someone's coming to see you. And then Roger Cross come up to me in the dressing room 
And then he said, we're going to swap you over since. They actually put a call. By this time, right, um, Barry Kitchener had taken a pub on the corner of the old Kent Road and Peckham Park Road. Funny thing is, when I was a cab driver and I was pointing it, it went from a pub to residential to offices to residential to hot offices, now back to a bar, right, after all this time and all those years. And then what happened was that they rang the pub to, to say to Barry, can you come and play in this reserve game? Because we want to put someone else at centre-half alongside Jub, and we're going to move John Sitton to right back because someone's coming to look at him. Well, that someone turned out to be Keith Peacock from Gillingham. He come up to me, Crossy, and he said, look, have a good game today, Sits. He said, we're playing you right back. He said, like, you can do yourself a lot of good. You do yourself a big favour. And I went, what do you mean? And he said, and he said uh, someone's coming to look at you. Right? Um, and I said, the only good I want to do is for Millwall. I said, if I play well, I expect to be rewarded by getting a first-team place back. And he said, just knuckle down. He said, and uh, think he'd already made his mind up, Anderson, and he'd hardly seen me train or play. And um, maybe, like I said, he didn't like maybe he didn't like my face. He didn't like my physique. He didn't like the cut of my jib. I don't know. And uh, you, you had players like Robbo giving tours to their little cousins or their little brother. And he's like showing around the dressing rooms and saying stuff. And like Anderson's like, hey, he's great, isn't he? You know what I mean? Uh, but that was Robbo. He was like Marmite. He was very loud. And you either loved, uh, loved him or disliked him. I mean, I, I loved him. He's a pal to this day. But sometimes it can be a personality clash. So Anderson says to me, I spoke to Keith Peacock. He's made uh, an offer for you. I've told him your wages. Um, he said, I want you to negotiate with him. He said, he's coming just before the first team game. So the reserve team game was on the same afternoon at the den as the, as the first team game. And this is the truth. What happened? I went in and spoke to Peacock. And what happened was he never looked at me contract, um, Anderson. And he gave Peacock a figure. So I was already getting a little bit of a rise. Then he made me an offer. Um which turned out to be competitive other players, a piss take. Then I asked him for a signing on fee and I got a bit of a signing on fee, which turned out to be a piss take. Um, but where Mill was concerned, I thought to myself, there was like an air of resignation about me staying. Um, and then he said to me at the end of the reserve game, as he was showering, he towed himself off and he started to get changed, Anderson. I'll be honest, I wanted to splosh him. I thought, you're a horrible, nasty, sarcastic cunt. He said to me, if you don't want to leave, don't leave. Stay here. He said, Man United might come in for you. I had six months left on my contract. I thought, what do I do? I'm saving up to get married. I'm getting fucking married next year. Um, so I'd done the deal and shook hands with Peacock and I was on my way. Then I went down to join my father and my wife. I'd give my dad the SP on what was going on. And uh, I fucking crumbled. My wife burst into tears. The worst part about it was the first team were playing quite well. <laughs> and then, like, you've got all these people who are new off the field and you've got the crowd. Like I've said in my football, I keep repeating time after time on interview after interview. Um, I had me ups and downs there, but I said, fuck it. You know what I mean? This is this is me. And if I'm having a rough time, I'll roll my sleeves up and I'll still have a go for you. I said in my book, if you can't play for Mill supporters, you shouldn't be in professional football. That was that, and uh, I crumbled, broke down in tears that I was leaving. But then I had to pull myself together because my dad looked across. I just thought, like, I just fucking wipe, wipe the thing away. But I felt myself chugging, you know what I mean? And then 
me, me, me missus, she was fucking inconsolable, but like, but look, we was leaving and then the deal was done and I left. Would the easy thing, you was leaving the easy thing. Could it have been that you could have stuck it out and maybe rolled your sleeves up and got on with it? What if you don't get a new, what if you don't get a new contract and they make you a free transfer? You know, then it's in the lap of the gods. You're in a, the way I see it, Neil, at the time, it was an era of resignation about me not being wanted. Um, and I thought to myself, well, if you can't, you can't really stay where you're not wanted. It's like it's like I've remarked previously, and it's almost like a divorce, you know what I mean? And then people go, oh, yeah, well, now that ended all right. Well, my whole career, really, by and large, which I'm going to address in book two, um, has been bittersweet. Whether it's my fault or somebody else's fault is open to conjecture. But at the end of the day, people go, oh, yeah, well, it lended. Well, it don't, never ends all right. It never, it, it, it never, nothing ever ends all right. It's uh, that's a facade. It's make believe. It's put on as an act uh, because basically, if everything was all right, it wouldn't end. Um, so the bottom line is, you know, my, my mind was made up for me, and I thought to myself, well, it's better to go while I'm wanted, where I'm wanted. Um, by someone who wants me, in this case, uh, Peacock and Gillingham, rather than hang on and take a chance. If I'd have hung on and took a chance, who knows, maybe I'd have played my way back in. Um, but yeah, Taggy, uh, all due respect, he weren't in my class. He weren't in my class as a player or an athlete. And he's and he had so many operations on his knees, uh, it looked like a fucking map of the underground. And, and I'll be honest, again, if he was an all set, have shot him. Um, so that left me an Allardyce. And a couple of others, uh, Phil Coleman, a decent defender, uh, probably the, one of the best man-to-man markers I've ever seen outside the top division or the top level. Um, I just went away. I rolled me through. I was determined um, in my own little way to try and prove him wrong. Because he, make no mistake about it, he come in. He says it in his own book, Allardyce. He only chose Millwall because they basically bettered and usurped the offers made at the time by other clubs when he was being let go by whatever club he was being let go. Um, I don't know who it was, Bolton, West Brom, whoever the fuck I'm, I'm, I don't know. And I'm not really interested. All I know is he came in on, he came in on 10 times my signing on fee and five times my salary. Well, you got, listen. And he got a mansion, you said. Yeah, he got, well, he got a big house rent free off of the, off of the chairman who started to pay off all the debts. I remember the previous Christmas, the chairman, Alan Fong, he come in and uh, he took us to his gaff on the A3 or uh, the A2, wherever it was, the A2, I think, the Beaverbrook Club. He had its own ground track. The geezer was was caked. He, he, he started to pay off the debts. And all of a sudden, um, you know, where, whereas, like, uh, apart from getting a like, we had a great coach. We had the England coach for away games. But apart from that, really, George had to make do with, like, fucking, when we stayed overnight, it was old Mother Hubbard's, uh, you know, uh, bed and breakfast um we had the odd hotel but george had george had to make do with limited funds but the new geezer comes in and it's like um putting stevie wonder in charge of a ferrari you understand what i'm trying to say they like they, they, you know he's put he, he's paid the fucking uh paid the debts off and started to give uh anderson money who never had a scooby well i've gone away and i thought this is the way i looked at it it's a bit oversimplistic, but I think it's uh, it's realistic, pragmatic, and quite forensic. I looked at it and I says, well, is Allardyce five times the centre-back that I am? Well, that's an emphatic no, fucking million percent, whether it's 1980-81 uh, uh, or whether it's now. It, not, in my, not in my class, no, nowhere near it. That's to my true belief. 
I had better spring. I was better in the air. I could punch a ball 40 yards, the same as him. I was a threat from set pieces. Better still, I was a better athlete. I was a spiteful in the tackle, if not more, uh, quicker, and I was two-footed. What's not to love? But at the end of the day, Anderson didn't fucking want me. So what I'm saying is, I look at it and I say, well, he got 10 times the signing on fee, five times the wages, uh, rent-free place, uh, somewhere Seven Oaks or Altington, out in the sticks, nice area. He couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe his fucking luck. But I look in, I say, well, is he 10 times the player I was? Or five times the player I was, depending on the signing on field or the basic? The answer's no. I went to Gillingham. We just missed out on promotion. Millwall finished ninth or 11th. That was my that was my next thing, to make sure we finished above Millwall. Because I was so hurt, so scarred by leaving the club. Where I fought, and I'll be honest, I'm going to be honest, not I fault. It's what, I, it's what I wanted. Um, I was hoping I could stay there for 10, 11, 12, 15, 20 years. I'd have dressed up as a, I would dressed up in drag to be the fucking laundry woman. I'd have dressed up in drag to be the tea lady. You know what I mean? I'd have, I'd have been the kit boy. That's how much I love the place. And um, I don't get emotional about many things. I'll get angry. Um, but leaving Millwall off, me and my missus, we fucking broke down. And, and that, to me says everything you need to know about the way I felt about the club. So are you angry about how it ended now? Or are you just philosophical about how all the times passed and Well I don't know. I mean what if... do you do? Do you what do you do, Neil? Do you censor these do you censor these things? Do you censor Absolutely these Absolutely not. No. no. Well, of course I'm angry. Because like he's one of um the way it turned out, at least three people no, four people in my career that made the whole thing bittersweet. And the geezer was an unqualified 24-carat cunt. That's the that's how I fucking feel about him. And uh, a fucking nasty bastard, uh, too full of his own self-importance. I mean, I wish I'd have hung on long enough to fuck him off and see him off and play under Graham. Because someone like Graham, who was educated at Chelsea, let's not forget all this, right? He was a top draw manager at Millwall and Arsenal, and he and he he's won Spurs only trophy in the last fucking however many years, right? Have it right. And I know I talk rough and ready, but this when when I start getting worked up and animated, this is how I feel. Right? He was educated at Chelsea, George Graham, right? So he knows the game inside out. And at the end of the day, um you've got to be fit, you've got to have your ability and your technique, but uh, I'd have fell in love with the way he set things up and organised things. Because when I was at Millwall early doors, he was just about to take a pub. He was on he was on his last legs. He was just about to take a pub. And then what he does in the off chance, Venables get, uh, gets the thing, he, the runner, the gaff at QPR, and he rings an ex-playing colleague at Chelsea, Terry Venables, right? Both ex-Chelsea boys. He says, um, I need a bit of work. Right, and he, he gives him the youth team job. Well, in the meantime, Venables had gone to Barcelona and invented this um, defensive system, and then brought it back to the UK. And he used it at um, QPR in particular and uh, Tottenham. Right, and what happened was while he was at QPR, he taught that system to George, who was the youth team coach. I remember him bringing a youth team from QPR for a friendly at Mills training ground. And I'll tell you, the centre-back was the kid that made it big uh, in the first team in Northern Ireland, Alan McDonald. And uh, he's standing there looking very smart, very handsome, very clean cut. And he's thinking and bossing. And you think to yourself, God, this, this, this is, I'm listening. I'm listening as, as a wannabe coach. So I would have loved to have hung on them and played under him because of the uh, organisational side of it. 
and um, gather more knowledge. So I was gutted. I was gutted to leave. And and at the end of the day, you had a geezer and answer your question. As long as, as well as being a nasty bastard towards me, what did he know about English football? What did he know about Millwall? What did he know about the third division? I mean, where where did the chairman get off in employing in employing such people? Do you know what I mean? And I, he tipped the gaff upside down, and he totally contradicted everything he said. Because he, he was no spring chicken, Allardyce. Then he brings in Warman, he brings in West, one or two others. And he said, oh, you know, there's too many people here treading water and they're on the last knock into their career. <laughs> you go one route or the other. And, and what he'd done, he went the other and contradicted what he just said. Because the, the, the first route you go is you say, right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put together a, a decent young side who are all good athletes and good players and build from now. Which he actually had, I think... Yeah, well, if yeah, if people are listening to this, uh, Peter Anderson is actually seen as probably being one of Millwall's worst ever managers, if not the worst manager. But he inherited a young squad, didn't he, from George Petchy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, know, what, the listen, new, Neil, to that I'm, FA Youth Cup side. Yeah, I'm, listen, Neil. I, I, I'm sorry to think because this is my this is my pet one of my pet subjects. If you've got a young side, you you can. If you know your stuff, like someone like George, right? If you know your stuff like George, right? What, and this is what he did at Arsenal. He had homegrown talent. He believed in what I believe in, which is the core element The core element of the side, right, uh, needs to be homegrown talent. What, what you need is you need people who have got an emotional attachment to the football club. Well, I've been won over by the players, my teammates, the squad, uh, the admin staff, the backroom staff, the management team, and the supporters, above all the supporters. Right? So I was like staunch Millwall. But the point being, what you do is you take them and you organise them and mould them. And, and and you mould them in there. And, but it, like I say, Anderson was all over the place. So what he wanted, he just wanted to be able to have a five-a-side during the week, which he did, uh, Southwark Park on the AstroTurf. Um Funny thing is, when we played on now, they had the rugby posts up. <laughs> so, so yeah, so we're playing, we're playing, a, we're a football team playing a nine aside with nothing organisational on a rugby pitch. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but the bottom line is, what I said about the contradiction. What he does is he he uh, he gets in senior pros who, in inverted commas, know the game um, and don't really need to be instructed or told what to do. And he just say, well, you, that's your unit, get on with it. You know what I mean? Whereas George would have been the polar opposite. Yeah. And I think the season you left, uh, March 1982, came, uh, you play against Millwall, I think, for the first time for Gillingham. Yeah. Tony Cascarino puts Gillingham 1 0 up. And then Dean Neal equalises after 89 minutes. What do you remember about that game? Uh, is the Den or the Jules? Was it at Priestfield it or was, the... Yeah, it was at Priestfield. I think it was over Easter. It was a Friday. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what I remember about it. I remember um, wanting to do really well. I remember massive Mill support at one end. Um, I remember Dino, uh, again, pal of mine, and lived up the road when I lived in North London. He lived, around, he lived uh, basically five minutes away. Um and there was a time when I used to bring him in, uh, bring him into training, uh, and, and, and his younger brother, Johnny. Um, 
yeah, I mean, the, the, the bottom line for me Neil, was was basically finishing above them in the league. That 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 was the main that was the main thing for me because all the all the chit chat, all the talk. Uh, what sticks out in my mind more, I'll be honest with you, um, was when I came back to the den. <laughs> and then and then I'll tell you this a true test of your metal. By this time Addison had left and George was the manager. George Graham was the manager. And he like I said, he started to try and set him up. And um I was playing right back on the day. I think I was marking Otto Lukowski. Up front was uh, Trev Raylock, ex Chelsea teammate against Brucey, Stevie Bruce. Um Yeah, I've just pulled the yeah. game up here actually. I know what you're gonna say. We lost one nil. And uh no, you lost four one. Was it 4-1? Nah. Yep. Yep, it was. Tony Cascarino scored after a minute. This is in January 1983. Uh, Ding Neal equalised. Dave Stride put us 2-1 up. Andy Massey put us 3-1 up. Then Austin Hayes put us 4-1 up. I think we actually lost the game down at Gillingham earlier that season, 1-0. Okay. Okay. Yeah, might sound about right. Might sound about right. I can't believe I was in the opposing back four and we got beat 4-1. Um, oh, you came off, you? I got, yeah, Robbo topped me in the last <laughs> fucking Brucey. I mean, um, what's he worth? About 40 million now, another one. Uh, it's just about luck and fate, you know what I mean? And, and having the right people behind you and people keep promoting you and keep pushing you. Um, unbelievable. And I went fucking ballistic when I found out. Um, I can't quite see why you'd play 88 minutes. And then, what, like I said, what George brought in this uh, defensive strategy where they shut the lines off and force you inside. So the first player done it, and what happened was I went past him. And then as I've accelerated, got it on my left foot, I was about to uh, have a pop at goal. And uh, Robbo come out at the back, airing out the back four. And as I've let the shot go, he left his foot up. And um, I kicked the sole of his boot. And it, it done me ankle. And that was in the 88th minute. So I'll get carried off with two minutes to go. And then uh, no need for it. Spite for one necessary and totally 100% out of order. Brucey says in the bath, Sits didn't fancy it. <laughs> so I just said, you fucking silly Bon Geordie cunt. I said, if I didn't fancy it, would I go off in the second minute or the 88th minute? Do you know what I mean? And uh, I said, like, you fucking work it out, you dim low. I said, you fucking headed too many balls. And um, another one, just fate, someone who believes in you. You know what I mean? I had better spring. I was a better athlete. I was quicker. I was two-footed, more spiteful in the tackle. Yeah, he's the only centre-back I fucking know who's gone out of his way to break his own leg. And uh, he, he said, I'm going to top this, geezer, Tommy Tynan. I'm, I'm the Plymouth. And he's come, yeah, I'm crashing through, he come crashing through the back of him. Tynan lifted his foot. Bruce, he broke his own leg. And um, but he's another one, you know. What I mean, I was exactly the same threat as him from set pieces, and I could punch a defensive head of 40 yards. But someone believes in him, buys him for 80 grand, then he goes for fucking 850 grand, and the rest is history. But it's that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Um, yeah, well, off I started, I started off, uh, I thought I'd done all right that game, yeah, played right back. What I, what I remember, Neil, was getting crucified by the crowd. Absolutely crucified. I was going to say, what was it like going back to the den? Yeah, well, they, obviously they try and put you off, intimidate you, um, call you all sorts of names. You just fucking bat it away, get on with it, didn't you? You know what I mean? You get, it ain't, it ain't, I mean, it ain't, it's um, comes with experience. It don't affect you. 
it's the Millwall way, I think, isn't it? Yeah, why not? Why not? You can't have your cake and eat it. When I played there, I loved it. And then I've gone back there, not by choice, playing for a different team. You expect it. You know what I mean? So you can't have your cake and eat it. They're going to think. But um, I'll be honest with you. Um, I suppose it's that it's that will to win. That's de- that determination and desire. That it's borderline spiteful. So you you know you're not you're not going to be really like applauded and revered as an ex player. You're more than likely to get hammered. Nothing wrong with that. What was it like playing with Tony Cascarino? Because obviously he came into Millwall and one of life's lucky boys, isn't he? One of life's lucky boys. Fantastic. Um, I always said to him, I don't think you punch your weight. He was six foot four. Fucking fires like tree trunks. Um, calves like like double corn on the cob. He, he was built like really well, uh, good athlete and all when he put his mind to it. He did destroy anyone in the running because he had power. Um, got him for, I think it's a story made up, but it ain't, it's the truth. I got him for 12 tracksuits from a Sunday side. Uh, That's right, yeah. Yeah, so or not or, or like a like a low down non league side. I think someone like Cray Wanderers or someone. Cray uh, St Mary's or somebody. Cray Saint, yeah, somewhere yeah, like St that. Mary Cray somewhere where he lived anyway. Yeah. That he, just, he lived yeah. just off the A two, so it was between Millwall and thing. And then he he um he changes his mind when he when he fancies it. You know what I mean? Because when I knew him, all he kept saying, "I'm a Millwall supporter. I'm a Millwall supporter." Now when he's on Talk Sport, he's uh, he's either fucking he's a Liverpool supporter. I don't know. But um, yeah, no, he was, he was a white cast, great lad, great lad, great lad off the field, funny, good company, uh, had a lot of socials with him, stayed round his house. Me and my missus like stayed stayed round his house for the uh, end end of the year player of the season uh, with him with him and his girlfriend at the time. Um, top draw bloke, yeah. But uh, in terms of um, you know where where you are in the game, he, he had all these. Uh, Magnificent assets going for him, which made him um, you know, put placed him in demand, didn't it? You know, so like your Chelsea's, your Villas, your Celtics, your uh, you know, like Millwall at the start, uh, Republic of Ireland, unbelievable, fantastic career. Did he phone you up at all when Millwall were in for him and ask your advice? Uh, no. No, I would. I would Fair think. Yeah, there. no. Listen, at the end of the, at the end of the day, um, you know, I've only, I've in terms of playing from, I've only got, I've only got positives to say. Uh, so you know that that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been a difficult conversation. So, how often did you play against Millwall after you left? Uh, apart from the ones you're talking about, I can't remember coming up against them. I might have been sitting in there. I think I might have been sitting in the crowd for a League Cup game, um, injured or suspended, because I was always in the side unless I was injured or suspended um, for Leighton Orient. I remember, um, I think it was Dean Oryx. He was outstanding. May he rest in peace. He was another one who came through the ranks while I was there. Another lovely lad. Top, top draw. Good centre forward. Good forward. Um, yeah, I think they've done Orient in the League Cup. But no, in answer to your question, Neil, not 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 very often. Not very often. Yeah, I think when you were at Orient, you were they were fourth division, weren't they? And That's right. we were yeah. Yeah, pushing yeah. second first division. So Yeah, another one for the second book. And now I've had a rethink. 
now I've had a chance to grow up and mature. Now I've had a chance to uh, reflect. Now I've had a chance to call it what it is, bittersweet. Uh, Frank Clark, that summer of 85, he said, I'll take a punt on you for a couple of hundred quid. And uh, what I should have said is I'm taking a fucking punt on you. You've just had two successive relegations. <laughs> the fucking front on these people. Neil, if only you knew. If only Listen, I'll live and let live. I like to think I'm a decent, honest, honourable human being. But some of these people, I wish I'd have got a diploma. Uh, I think I said it in my book. I said, I think, I wish I'd have got a diploma for the, for the sheer front that they've got. The same diploma they got from the fucking university of sheer front. Um, just <laughs> unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Yeah, I'll take a punt on you. But this is, along with this other fucking mug, this other muppet, the fucking pygmy in, and he's an intellectual pygmy, Keith Peacock, that kept me on the same money for eight years. You'd be not bitter about that then, being on the same money for eight years. Oh, of course I am. But then I could say it's my, <laughs> I could say it's my fault for being a poor, poor negotiator, or I could say it's my fault for saying, well, you had all this um, adolescent angst and all this bravado and this cavalier attitude and this expressionism. And the uh, laissez-faire attitude, which allowed me to express myself in the early four, like the first four or five years at Chelsea. And then I went all, as I slid down the pole, uh, it's almost as if I became more paranoid and less confident and more insular. Do you know what I mean? I should have, I should have even said, this is what I want, which in the end I did when we got promoted. And he still, uh, instead of the usual uh, f- like fist, it was a, uh, just a mild prostate exam where he said, oh, sits, if anyone uh, deserves a bigger slice of the cake, it's you. And I, I wanted my money doubled and, and, a, and, a, and a signing on fee or a, a, a loyalty bonus. And he said, so to double it from 200 to 400, and he said, what we do, he said, I'll give you 375 and I'll give you the other 25 as a, built in as a loyalty bonus. So, you know, he still finger-fucked me at the end of the day. He got his own way. Then there's Muppets, not in my class as a pro, not in my class as a player. They come to the club. They end up on six, six fifty, seven hundred quid a week. So, of course, I'm fucking bitter. Of course, I'm angry. Because when – how would you feel if you've done a great job? Uh, you, you come, you, you're coming to me uh, to toll me house, and we agree a deal, a grand, for the 20 square metres in the kitchen. And then at the end of it, I just say, now nah, I don't really like the grouting. Is four hundred. Take it or leave it, and fuck off. How would you feel? Get the ump, wouldn't you? Yeah, you get the ump. That's that's fucking it in the bottom. That's the bottom line. There's an analogy. Yeah. So another another fucking muppet. Yeah. What can you do? What can you do apart? And people say, "Oh, you're angry and bitter," and I say, "Yeah, I am. Yeah. Now what? (laughs) Now what? What are you going to do about it? All I can do is listen. All is one. I've had. I've sold thousands of books, Neil. Right. I've had uh, thousands of support on social media. Thousands of people compliment it. There's always fucking one. And this one just happens to be a West Ham supporter. And he said, uh, what it is, he said in the book, it's like, it's almost as if you're a professional, you're a professional uh, victim. It's almost as if like, oh, look at me. I'm all I've done by and uh, his Twitter thing, I, I ended up having a thing with him, and I just, I just thought I can't be asked with I blocked the cunt, Bobby Moore, RIP. So he's obviously a West Ham supporter. So whether it's to do with me being an ex Chelsea, ex Millwall, I don't know. But he says, oh, you, you're like a professional victim, and you're thing, you're this and that, and look at me, how I've done by, and look what was done to me, and worries me. And I said, I've got on with life. It couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, 
I'll get vocal, yeah, I'll get passionate, yeah, I'll get animated, yeah, I'll get angry, yeah, I'll get uh, bitter and twisted. So what? Now what are you going to do about it? At the end of the day, that's me coming across. I don't understand the fucking word bitter at the end of the day. I don't even know what that means. Uh, what I will say is, yeah, I'm angry, and I'm probably the, the, the person I'm most angry at is myself. But what I said to the geezer is, all I've done is stated facts, right? All I've done is told the truth. You deal with them how you see fit. That's all I can do. So when you ask me the question, how I feel about someone and how I feel about a situation, from me, you're going to get uh, an internal from the heart, 100% honest answer and the way I feel, right? I'm too old now to give a fuck, you know what I mean, at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. But whereas before, I would try and tread carefully. And what that does, let me tell you something, what that does, that makes you, it made me paranoid and insular about slipping out the game. But what I maintain is it, a, a large part of it, it was my own fault. And this is for other players to think on if they listen to these podcasts. This is for other managers to think on. Right? What happens is you get to a situation where it's a lifestyle choice to stay in professional football. It's all on new from the age of 12, 13. So it becomes, like I say, about managers, lower division managers, division two managers, division uh, division one managers, even championship managers, right? The job is like a nightmare. It's hard work. It's a thankless task. It doesn't pay a massive amount of money, particularly in the top echelons of non-league, although there are some liberty takers on blinding money in, in Division 2, Division 1 and the Championship, right? But what I say is this, similar to myself as a player, it's a lifestyle choice. You understand what that means? Because I say, yeah. well, rather than do what I've actually done, which is go and build another career, do the topographical knowledge of London, right? Which is equivalent when I did it before it was dumbed down by Livingston, the equivalent of a PhD, right? It's rather than go away and get qualified in something else, they go, I'll hang on. I'll hang on his shirt, on his coattails. I'll, I'll, I'll become sycophantic. I'll creep. I'll crawl. I'll say the right things. I'll laugh at jokes that are not funny. I'll shake hands with people I don't like just to stay in the game. It's a lifestyle choice. And that's where I was at, I think, as a player. And I let myself down. You know what I should have done? I should have said, fuck it. If that's how you feel about me, and that's the contempt, like Peacock and Clark, right, in the end, um, a pair of exploitative, uh, like horrible pair of cunts, both of them, at the end of the day, I fucking should have showed the contempt for them that they showed for me and said, all right, go back to your Tommy Cunningham, 600 quid a week, who took a pay cut along with Barry Silkman to keep the club fucking afloat after two successive relegations. Keep him as your centre-back. Keep him as your captain. I'm off. And and uh, that's what I should have done. But I didn't. And then in the end, he says to me, Clarky, ah, oh, you're just like me. You just want to play and train. So what he's done, he's done to me what Brian Clough done to him, right? And I'm going to explain it to you, right? He was right at the end of his career and he won a European Cup with Brian Clough. Brian Clough saw a guy like me, right, in Frank Clark. He saw a guy who trained well every day, lived the right way, was part of the group, kept himself to himself, was a family man, and he was a steady 7 out of 10 maybe eight out of 10 every week. How hard is that? Win the ball, give it to John Robertson, right? And then he got away with probably paying him buttons, peanuts, right? So what happened was history repeated itself. And then what was done to him, Clark done to me. And he says, oh, you just want to train and play. And I said to him, yeah, Frank, but it'd be fucking nice to get paid for it. What I should have done, should, I should have just gone, done what my brother done, become a millionaire out of construction. And I should have gone fuck football, but it's my fault. I made the, uh, I preferred the lifestyle. 
some that I did pick up from your book was uh, you were scouting for Manchester City. That's right. And Swindon under Glenn Oddle. And you recommended to Manchester City a certain Timmy Cahill. Yeah, while he was at Millwall, yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And what happened was uh, the guy who was giving out uh, the coat... What happened was... um, See, this is this is football, Neil, right? There's always someone. There's always someone who thinks they can walk in a dead man's shoes. In my case, it was an ex-colleague who I'd worked under. He was youth coach at Leighton Orient, Pat, Pat Holland, right? So he was hovering in the wings. And what I've done, this is a true story. I put the final nail in my own coffin. I negotiated, I was negotiating a three-year deal with Barry Earn, And he said to me, this season's been a disaster. I said, yeah, well, I can give you the reasons for that. I've spent 10 months firefighting. I said, I've saved the club from fucking administration, ultimately liquidation. I've eradicated uh, a half a million pound debt, 10 grand a week, ergo 520 grand for a year. I said, and I've taken us 170 to 220,000 pound into the black. I said, all I want is a level playing field. I said, no, I want uh, investment. I said, no, I want a bit the chance to be able to speculate. Um, and I said, this is the route I think we should go. I think the odd cheeky buy. I said from someone who's been uh, who's being let go, um, who's surplus to requirements. I think we should pillage non-league. I said I've got players lined up. Uh, one of who ended up at West Ham for thirty grand. I could have had him for ten, um, and I recommended him to Harry Redknapp. And I said, and then uh, the rest. I want the core element. I said homegrown talent, and this is how I want to set up. Which I gave him a portfolio, the club from top to bottom, and I wanted, like I said on the previous interview, I wanted people rewarded. Well, I think we, what happened with, with Barry Earn, who's pound note orientated and he's a businessman. Like he said to me, I'm a businessman, not a philanthropist. I think it frightened the life out of him. While I was negotiating it, he said, who do you want as your number two? He said, what about Cockrell? So what he was trying to do, he was trying to kill two birds with one stone and have Glenn Cockrell as player coach. Well, Glenn never had any qualifications and he weren't a coach. He was a senior pro on big money. So he was trying to get value for money. He also done a deal with a previous manager to turn up twice a week because he lived right down near his former club, Southampton, in Hampshire. So uh, me being me, lovely guy, decent guy, fair, I said, I kept up that arrangement with him. Well, now it was a different ball game. So when he said to me, you want as your number two, I said, Patsy Holland. I said, because I think we'd be the perfect complement for each other and um, perfect foil for each other and sounding ball for each other. I said, and if you want good cop, bad cop, you know who the bad cop is. Um, I said, but like, we can both coach and we can put our heads together. I said, and I said, hopefully come up with a, a solution on the playing side. Behind the scenes, Patsy Holland was always, uh, was already being um, approached and spoken to by the likes of um, having been recommended by someone who stormed out the club, Bernie Dixon, uh, Chief Scout, ex-Docker. Um Directors who uh, complimented me on how I'd handled things, like Derek Weinrape. Um, I would say rest in peace, but he turned out to be a liar and an out-and-out nasty bastard. And Harry Linney, um, they were already talking to Holland and recommending him to Pat Holland. He didn't know nothing about football. He didn't know nothing about a football club or football people. And uh, Lo and behold, he, um, he basically got appointed. Um, well, that, you know, that, that, that's how things happen behind the scenes. That's what happens behind the scenes, and that's how things happen behind the scenes. So you were scouting Timmy Cahill? 
We go back to the original point. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, right, so sorry. So I've I've gone off piece. Sorry, Neil, I do apologise. He got the sack after 10 months, Holland. And he said he approached me. And I, I think he approached me by way of an apology for uh, coming and shaking hands with me, asking me in the director's lounge, how's it going? And he brought a friend with him who he put, who was a ground trainer who was going to put in a scout there. Um, I just knew him as Brian with the glasses. And um, I think by way of an apology for taking the job behind me back and knowing that Ern had lied to me, uh, or no, nah, not lied, let's say at the very least being a bit duplicitous and edging his bets. But, but that's fine. That's Barry. He, um, I've got no problem with that because he strikes me as the type of guy who's very efficient and gets his ducks in a row. So he obviously, he obviously had him lined up. So by way of an apology, he said, look, since I got, he rung me at home and he said, I've got a bit of scouting work. He said, uh, for Arsenal and for Manchester City. He said, come with me. We go together. It'll put your face about again after the debacle of the Channel 4 documentary. He said, and what we do, we, I'll do a match report for one. You do a match report for the other. He said, and what they're doing, they're giving us, sometimes they want a, a, a report on how the opposition set up. So like a, a scouting report for the coach and manager. Um, sometimes it's about players. Then what happened was he said, well, I'm going to break away. He said, like, uh, so he's more or less saying to me, I've done me bit now. I've put you in touch with Man City. And the boss there, our chief scout, was Jimmy Frizzell, ex Notts County, etc. Oldham. And um, he had a fantastic setup. And he used to allocate me a game every week and give me players to watch and put in a, a report favourable or, other, or otherwise. And would you recommend them as, as an ex-professional uh, player yourself? And then Patsy went away and he worked for Arsenal scouting for them. And his mate, Steve Rowley. And then in the end, his mate, Steve Rowley, got him a little job doing uh, some evening coaching and academy work at the Arsenal. So he was back in the fold. I carried on working and I recommended Tim Cahill from Millwall. I recommended Arjun Dazu, a centre-back. I think he played for Wigan and Portsmouth and a little fat midfield player who was 17. And I said... um, I got misquoted because he was trying to take the piss on the talk sport by uh, Johnny, what's his name? Vaughan. Johnny Vaughan, the broadcaster. He'd, he'd obviously been on the white espresso again. He was trying to take the piss out of me and uh, say that I'd discovered Frank Lampard. I never discovered Frank Lampard. I recommended Frank Lampard. And I said, after a 3-0 beating, Arsenal 3, West Ham 0 at Ivory, I said to Jimmy Frizzell, if the hierarchy are looking to get youngsters in worth the money, now would be the time. Buy him while he's worth the money. Because whenever I saw him, he was in terms of uh, his passing and movement and his habits and his willingness to keep going. He was under the cosh, getting battered by Petit, Perez and Vieira. Um, I just said, get him while he's worth the money. So they're the three players I recommended. And then I did uh, match reports for Glen Oddle at Swindon. The year they got promoted, Johnny Gorman gave me a bit of work. He's another ex-youth coach at um, Lake Orient. And he said, look, we need someone to do match reports on the opposition. Then I got a few calls from him and Oddle. This is spot on. This is fantastic. And um, got a couple of tickets for the uh, playoff final at Wembley. They got promoted, which was nice. Anyway, John, uh, we've had you for nearly two hours. I think that's probably quite a good place to end this show. Okay, sweetheart. Lovely. Uh, it's been... Absolutely amazing spending the last two hours in your company. Thank you. Uh, 
hearing all the stories, just like on Twitter, you just say it the way it is. And I like that, and I think the listeners will like that when they eventually listen to this. Oh, yeah, no, so I sincerely hope they enjoy it. I really hope they enjoy it, mate, yeah. So I'd like to thank you for your time. Of course, if you're listening to this and you like it, could you please leave us a like rating and a comment? And uh, we'll catch you with the next one. Hi, this is Marvin Williams. You're listening to that Millwall podcast. When you look into Discover Student Loans, what you see might surprise you. We can help cover your college costs, don't charge you fees, and give you cash rewards for good grades. Ready to apply? Visit discoverstudentloans.com. Limitations apply. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. Wow, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.